The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God bless you, Ecclesia. I'm thrilled uh, to get, it feels like a rare privilege now that I get to do back-to-back weeks at Elder. Um, with our format at Westside, I often feel like I'm flip-flopping and you think I'm just like on a beach somewhere, but I'm not. Uh, I'm usually preaching over there, but I'm really grateful to have back-to-back weeks to uh, get to share with you. Uh, I, it's hard to fathom uh, what we've all been through just in the course of the last seven days. Um, so for many of us, I don't know where you were when you realized like we all thought we kind of dodged a bullet. and. Um, and we thought we were doing fine. We were running our kids around. We were in the middle of a meeting with our leadership team locally. We had rented a conference room and we're getting some time off our campus. And uh, we got to know all the people there really well because everybody kind of went into an instant panic and I'm separated from my kids and people tried to leave and they couldn't leave. And then guys with big trucks said, I'm gonna leave, I can totally leave. And then they couldn't leave. And that's when we realized like when the guys with big trucks can't do it, that we're all just gonna be hunkered down for a little while. And we're really grateful that this was not a storm anywhere in the proportion of what we experienced at Harvey. And yet, whether you experience loss in Harvey or not, if you experience loss this time around, it's painful. Even if it's your first time to flood, I can tell you as someone who's flooded, the first time you flood, it doesn't matter how many times, it's just painful. And what we wanna do as a church is gather around people that are struggling and need help. And so um, we're, I wanna remind you, that doesn't mean the church staff, that means all of us that we're the church. And I wanna invite you to make us aware of, a needs you, of any needs you become aware of. At our website, ecclesiahouston.org backslash Imelda, you can do two things. Uh, you can make us aware of someone that you know um, that has a need, that experienced loss. And what I can tell you is we will follow up with them and we will find ways together to help them. Um, you can also make a donation to help us be able to pull that off. Uh, whatever that need is, it's important. And uh, we want people in our city to feel loved in a time of loss. And we're grateful that we get to be the church in that way. I want to remind you that you're the church. So that means as you're going around a neighborhood, if you see a house that people are dragging things out onto the street, I want to encourage you to stop. Would you just stop and say, hey, what's going on? What do you need? Um, my church will help. I would love to help. There are a lot of people that lost a car this week. They may need a ride. They may need some help in the transition. And what we want to do is just lean in and make it a little easier when times are hard. I'm also really excited to continue a series that we've been in. Sean and I have been excited to lead you in a series on church history. We've been looking at unique figures in the life of the church that tell us a lot about who we are and really in many ways who we want to be. Um, I get to share with you about uh, a a more recent figure in church history today. Uh, His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 and died in 1945. Here's a photo. I should show you a lot of photos, and one of the things you would quickly learn about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he was a man of tremendous style. Um, He he had a lot of great suits, and he he looked really good most of the time. Um, I want to introduce you to Bonhoeffer, and one of the things that uh, you may likely not know about him, it's really surprising that he became a theologian and a pastor for a number of reasons. Uh, But one of those reasons was that he was a prodigy as a pianist from the time he was very young. He was a great pianist. Everybody thought Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be a musician. He would be a pianist. 
And um, so I want to introduce you to Bonhoeffer uh, with some of the music that he played most often. Almost every weekend, he would sit at the piano with other siblings and other musicians and play Brahms and Chopin and quite often Schubert. Um, so I want to introduce you to one of the pieces of Schubert uh, that Bonhoeffer would have played often, our beloved Brian Mann, who leads our executive team. He's led our story team. He's kind of to say multi-talented is the biggest understatement I could offer, um, is going to play some Schubert, and then as he plays it, I'm gonna share a little bit more with you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I'd love you just to imagine a young German boy sitting at the piano. This young German boy came from a family that was not religious at all. Uh, they weren't involved in the life of the church, as would be typically common for German people, but they didn't have any church involvement whatsoever. Um, Bonhoeffer's mother kept, kept some of the Bible stories alive in their home, uh, but on a very limited basis. His father was a physician and a psychiatrist would consider himself in many ways a humanist. So it was really surprising when this piano prodigy at 14 turned to his family and said, I'm going to become a pastor and a theologian. Everyone in the family thought he was crazy. His brother ridiculed him. And quite likely they did what many of us would do with a 14 year old kid. They thought he'll outgrow it. And when he was 15 and 16 and 17, he persisted. He was going to be a pastor and a theologian. He went off to study at university. He was very bright. He was 21. Can you imagine? He's 21 when he gets his first PhD in theology. Just literally legal to drink here. Of course, in Germany, it's legal to drink beer when you're like 12. But, um, but he's still very young. And it's at this age that in many ways he stops for a season, at least, playing the piano. And he gets invited into an entirely new world. He becomes a pastor uh, both in Barcelona and Berlin. Um, he was one of seven children, so a large family. And he had a twin sister. His twin sister's name was Sabine. I love this photo of the two of them. Beautiful kids. One of the things that lets you know from a young age by the way, will you guys thank Brian Mann? Is that a gift or what to get to just a little bit of Schubert? I'm, I'm telling you, to get to serve with this guy is such a gift. We have been in many different countries where there is a piano in the hotel and we can just hold court. Literally, we play Stump Brian, right? You could start singing any song and he fills the gap. I'm really tempted to do it right now, but... <laughs> Highway run. You don't have it. Okay, you can't. It didn't happen in a year. Literally, you could get with Brian anytime and just start singing a song and he will fill in and play behind you. It's beautiful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, from a very young age with his sister Sabine, played a game that would be unusual for children. They lived close to a Catholic church and they had a lot of awareness when there were funerals. And one of the days that there was a funeral, uh, Bonhoeffer began to discuss with his sister the concept of eternity. And they began a practice where every night they would sit in their bedroom and attempt 
to contemplate and wrap their minds around the magnificence of eternity every night. And then they would, uh, later on, when they were separated in their bedrooms, they would continue this game. Bonhoeffer would knock to his sister Sabine, it's time to contemplate eternity. And whenever they had a significant thought, one of them would knock. And they were trying to grasp this thing that Bonhoeffer spent his life, in many ways, trying to understand. He became a, a significant theologian. Um, spent his time in many different places, I'm going to tell you about that, and ultimately became an influential leader in the resistance against Adolf Hitler and the Fuhrer movement. In, uh, February, on February 1st, 1933, two days after Adolf Hitler took power, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, gave a radio address to all of the German people, and he warned them about the dangers of idolizing and worshiping a man, about the dangers of this concept of a Fuhrer. And by the end of this national address, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's microphone had been unplugged, and in many ways the writing was on the wall that his opposition to Adolf Hitler uh, would end in many ways uh, tragically. There's a lot that I, I love about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. At the end of the day, what I would tell you, and I'm gonna share with you some of those things, um, at the end of the day, what I would tell you is that there are many things that he has taught me uh, that are the very reason that our church exists. And at the foundation of the things that we describe are some of his teachings, specifically about the church. This is what Bonhoeffer had to say about what it means to be the church. He says, the church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving it must tell men and women of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. We believe at our core at Ecclesia that the church exists for other people. Many times people come into our congregation, into our fellowship, and they have different ideas about what it means to be the church. We think it's this place that we're supposed to be illuminated and blessed and, and simply absorb what we see and hear. But we truly believe at Ecclesia that it's in service to others that we are gathered together, that that's the reason that we exist. Sometimes people will come up to me and just say, hey, pastor, the way you lead this church, it's kind of just exhausting because there's always a need somewhere. And we kind of wonder, like, where will Chris be next month? And what's he going to ask us to do next month? And I've got to tell you, you could, if you want to, you could look at that as exhausting because the reality is there are needs across the globe and they're not ending. What I can tell you is I don't believe it's exhausting. I believe it's exhilarating. That we're made to be those kind of people. We're made to serve and exist for others. Has anyone here had caffeine yet at all? Is there one person that's awake? Because I'm preaching like a really significant sermon to you and some of you look like you're at a nursing home watching someone in a rocking chair. I'm just, I'm just observing what I see. So I'm just letting you know, right? Um, you may not be aware, but um, I've, I've been a pastor um, for many years now. Um, it, it, I get a little depressed when I, I start to, to count. And, but one of the things I learned in my earliest years of pastoring was that some of the things that I would say became uh, highly criticized. Uh, in fact, uh, I was 23 and I'd started a church and I preached a sermon on uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. 
and I quoted Gandhi a number of times. I was surprised uh, that a couple of weeks later, uh, a pastor of a large megachurch in Dallas publicly rebuked me in his sermon uh, for quoting Gandhi. Uh, what I will tell you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he appreciated uh, much of what he learned from Gandhi. He, he actually petitioned to travel uh, to visit Gandhi, and, uh, and he quotes Gandhi quite often. And I just want that pastor to hear in the podcast, if he happens to hear it this week, <laughs> that I'm on the team with Bonhoeffer and he's all on his own. So um, Gandhi had this to say, right? And I think he was right. He says, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in service of others. This is very similar to what Jesus said last week in our, theology, our, our sermon on the theology of the cross, that it's when we lose our lives that we can find it. Bonhoeffer believed that we were called to that kind of service. All the things I'm gonna talk to you about today flow out of, in many ways, uh, Bonhoeffer's understanding of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read that passage to you. I want to invite you con to consider some of the truths in it, and then I'm going to share with you five different um, key points that I've learned. I trimmed them down from 12, so it was not easy, but we have five that I want to invite you to to consider from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. First, I want you to hear from Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul addresses the church in Corinth about what it means to be the Christian community. And this is what Bonhoeffer spent his life obsessed with and talking about. And Paul puts it this way. He says, each believer has received a gift. That's each of us. If you believe in Christ, you receive a gift that manifests the Spirit's power and presence. Now, if you're paying attention, you already know this is important. You have a gift, and when you use that gift, that gift is intended not for you but for others. And when you use that gift, it manifests the Spirit's power and presence. That gift is given for the good of the whole community. That's one of the reasons, what, part of what you'll find in this, is that we all have different gifts. And that's actually a really good thing. Like if you have a small group at Ecclesia, which I highly recommend that you should, if you have a small group at Ecclesia and everybody in that group has the gift of teaching, it will be a miserable small group. It will go far too long. Those people will talk way too much and, and you'll be ready to leave early, right? If you have a gift, if you have a small group and you don't have anybody in that, in that small group with the gift of hospitality, they love to make food, you will have bad food at your small group. It won't be good, right? What you want is to have people with different gifts. You want somebody with the gift of encouragement in your small group because you're gonna have a bad day and you want somebody that's gonna encourage you. You want somebody with the gift of faith who believes, right, that God's up to something good even when for you it feels really difficult and dark. Paul goes on and he explains. He says, the Spirit gives one one person a word of wisdom, but the next person, the same spirit, gives a word of knowledge. Another will receive the gift of faith, right? This is a big gift. If you have the gift of faith, you believe when the rest of us are really struggling with doubt. And you know what we do is we kind of piggyback on your belief. We go, if you I can, then okay, then God must be up to something by the same spirit. And still another gets gifts of healing, all from the one spirit, one person's enabled by the Spirit to perform miracles, another to prophesy. Prophesy isn't predicting the future, but it's speaking the truth in the midst of injustice in a way that creates tension and leads to beauty and hope. While another is enabled to distinguish those prophetic spirits, the next one speaks in various kinds of unknown languages, while another is able to interpret those languages. We can talk a lot about this. It's been confusing for people. Part of what I can tell you, in a day that was divided, 
by languages and cultures. God found ways to break the barriers of languages and cultures. Um, now we have Rosetta Stone and Google Translate, and it's a little bit different, but God still, his spirit is still doing things to break down barriers between cultures so that we realize we can come together. You're gonna hear more about this in this passage. He says, one spirit works all these things and each of them individually as he sees fit. Just as a body is one whole made up of many different parts and all the different parts comprise the one body, so it is with the anointed one. We were all ceremonially washed through baptism together in one, into one body by one spirit. And no matter our heritage, Jew or Greek, insider or outsider, no matter our status, oppressed or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Wherever you came from, any ethnicity, any background, all who come to Christ come and participate in one spirit and the spirit gives us all unique gifts. He says, here's what I mean. The body's not made of one large part, but of many different parts. Would it seem right for the foot to cry, I'm not a hand, so I couldn't be a part of this body? Even if it did, it wouldn't be less joined to the body. And what about an ear? If an ear started to whine, I'm not an eye, it shouldn't be attached to this body. It, in all its pouting, it's still a part of the body. Imagine, he says, the entire body is an eye. How would a giant eye be able to hear? And if the entire body were an ear, how would an ear be able to smell? This is where God comes in. God has meticulously put this body together. He has placed each part in the exact place to perform the exact function he wanted. Do you understand what he's saying? You're a part of that body. You may think I'm an unimportant part of that body. You are wrong. You are a very important part of the body. What you do is essential to the body. And the reason that I as a pastor can say whether it's a big hurricane that hits our city or a small one, the reason that I can say we will care for those in need is because I look out on this body and I know the gifts that you have. And if all of us will use those gifts, anything is possible. Anything. We're able to do anything if we use our gifts together. And if you buy into the lie that you're an insignificant part of the body, it defeats the whole thing that we're up to. And when all of us realize, hey, I'm not the thing, I gotta tell you, I'm not the thing in this body. None of us are the thing, but all of us together create a cohesive body that can do things that no other organization, if you want to call it that, is capable of. So he says, if all members were a single part, where would the body be? So now many members function within the one body. This is the primary text that is going to lead us to some of the truths that Bonhoeffer talked about that I hope are going to be a blessing to you today. So I have to count again sometimes. One, two, three, four, five points I wanna share with you and then I'm gonna tell you a story and close out with a really important text. If you're new to Ecclesia, um, it's less so at the 11 a.m., but we love the sound of babies and kids. So. We think a church that has babies and kids has a little bit more life to it than one that doesn't. And that um, babies and kids like to be heard. You all like to be heard, but they especially do. And we think that's not a bad thing at all. So if you're distracted by babies, you ought to go to a different church. Um, <laughs> five things we wanna tell you that I, I learned personally from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I hope you'll learn as well. Here's the first, don't be a coward. Don't be a coward. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer came back to New York as things were becoming absolutely insane in his home country of Germany. His friends in the United States said, don't go back. They knew that if he went back and joined the opposition against Adolf Hitler, that it could cost him his life. And he said, I don't have a right to rebuild Germany if I don't suffer with those who are suffering. And he believed that he could protect Jewish people and others that were being persecuted. And so he said, it's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. Ecclesia, we don't live in the same day, but I can tell you that if Bonhoeffer's willing to risk his life to go back to Germany, that we ought to be willing to risk some tension and difficulty and maybe even our reputation to stand up against bigotry and hatred and injustice when we see it. If it comes in front of us, right? And, and so we don't have to become a martyr but we should be willing to say, that's not true, that's not right, that's not kind. Men, I want to say specifically, we live in a world that still allows for, and in certain circles, will fail to reprimand sexism when it rises up. When people speak of women unkindly, if they speak of them in a degrading way, as men, we must do the right thing to say, that is not right, that is not true, that is not kind. I don't have ears for that kind of thing, right? And we want to create the world that we want our sons and daughters to live in and live in well. And Bonhoeffer reminds us, don't be a coward. That means that we're not a people that listen to gossip. That when people come to us and say, I heard this, did you hear that? That we say, I don't have ears for that. That is unkind, it is untrue. That we live in a world that is filled with those kind of things and we want to be the kind of brave people that step up in those moments. Now, when I read my first biography, you know, 26 years ago of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I imagined that would never be a crisis that we would face again, that we wouldn't be in the kind of world where pastors and theologians are having to stand up against Nazism, fascism, and white supremacy. I kind of thought, well, that's dead. Apparently it's not. Apparently it's not. And so Ecclesia, we want to live in the tradition of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that says we will not tolerate any form of white supremacy, any form of hatred towards certain people, all people are made in the image of God. And if we don't stand up for it, nobody will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us, don't be a coward, be brave, do the right thing. Secondly, I learned from Dietrich Bonhoeffer and I'm reminded that scapegoating is both easy and dangerous. Now, I got to tell you, no matter who you are on all kinds of sides, there's this uh, common theme that we want to go, well, I'll tell you who the problem is. Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a people group, and it's a lot easier not to deal with your own stuff if you've decided who the problem is, right? And you can point to them and go, let me tell you about why they're the problem. This is what Bonhoeffer had to say about scape scapegoating and judging. And this is, this is so true. He says, when we're judging others, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. Do you hear the difference? When you're casting judgment on somebody else, you don't have eyes to see anything. But when you look in love to someone else, it actually enlightens everything about the situation. He says, love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. That's the truth, right? 
That's who we are. He goes on and says, nothing that we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or don't do and more in light of what they suffer. I'm telling you, Ecclesia, this one is a game changer. If you will look at people that you have a difficulty with and, and ask the question, I wonder what it is that they have endured. I wonder what they have suffered. I wonder how I might empathize with them. Instead of scapegoating them, it changes everything. We want to be a people that look in love and not in judgment. Thirdly, and this is a big one, Dietrich Bonhoeffer teaches us undoubtedly that you cannot be a blank Christian. You can't be, and you can insert the adjective, you cannot be a blank Christian. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's day, most of his peers were German Christians. They were German Christians. And so when Hitler came to power, they viewed their Christianity through the lens of what it meant to be German. Are you following me? You guys still need more caffeine. I got to amp up paper co. They, they all saw themselves as German Christians. And so when they read the scriptures, they read them in light of what it means to be a German. And so when Hitler comes to power, they didn't have a problem because they were German first and Christian second. Now, I got to tell you, you could insert any adjective here, and I believe it will end in the exact same result. At the end of the day, what we found was that German Christians weren't actually Christians. And if you want to be an American Christian, you want to be a progressive Christian, you want to be a conservative Christian, whatever the adjective is you insert, what happens is you'll take that adjective and make it the foundation through which you view Christianity and you'll weed out the parts of Christianity you don't like and that's not Christianity. And you'll, you'll, you'll end up with something that will harm your own soul. And that's what the German Christians found. I, I believe, and here's what I'd like to invite you to. I, you look and you go, why did Bonhoeffer uniquely have this perspective that he was Christian rather than German Christian? And one of the things I'll tell you, I think it wasn't easy to do this in the early 1900s, but Bonhoeffer was very well-traveled. So can you imagine in the early 1900s, he had visited places like Cuba, like even today, how many of you have been to Cuba, right? I have. Anybody? How many? Like just a handful of us, right? Cuba's not an easy place to get to. The mojitos are fabulous, by the way. <laughs> he went to Cuba, to Mexico, to Italy. He loved Italy. He loved Italian food. To Libya, to Denmark, and to Sweden. Now imagine in the 1900s, none of those were easy. He lived in Germany, Spain, England, and the U.S., this is what I tell you, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not a German Christian because he already understood that he was a global Christian. He understood that Christ was at work in all places and it broadened his view. I've got to tell you, if, if Bonhoeffer were to do this in the early 1900s, how much more so is it important for us to do it today? It's not a hard thing. One of my favorite, this, the hardest part of this sermon is I should have made it a six-week series. 
um, because there's just so much in terms of content and in terms of great Bonhoeffer stories. I'll tell you part of one of my favorites. Uh, he was living in New York City for a brief time. He was connected with a church in Harlem that profoundly influenced his theology. And one day he realized like, I've always wanted to go to Mexico. I'm on the same continent. I'm in New York. Again, this is the early 1900s. And he turns to his friends and goes, who wants to go to Mexico? And they got a car and they drove to Mexico. They covered 4,000 miles in a car. They covered 1,200 miles on Mexican trains. Can you imagine Mexican trains in the early 1900s? Right. I'm telling you, we're doing a trip to Mexico next month. This is so five-star. It's ridiculous, right? And Bonhoeffer decides like, if God's at work, I must try those tacos. We're going to go, right? And they just find a way and they go to Mexico. This German guy shows up in Mexico, probably with no Spanish. And it, I mean, it's a beautiful adventure. He makes his way back and does what any good Christian would do. He had, been, uh, he had gone through New Orleans on his way there. You can't help but get sucked back in New Orleans on your way back, right? Because likely even then the food was amazing. And then he decides to go this time through the Jim Crow South on his way back to New York City. And they stopped at church after church. They worshiped with bodies of believers at African-American churches and the Jim Crow South. He fell in love with black gospel music, fell in love with it. He became obsessed with it. He brought back records and they say in Germany, he would just play, people would come to meet him, he'd just play black gospel music for them. He was so inspired by the way that they stood in opposition to power, but they did in a way filled with rejoicing and grace and humility. He fell in love with it. He describes his time in those churches, and he says this. He says that in him, it, he awakened to fresh spiritual energies. In the American church, he called the African-American church in the Jim Crow South, the American church of the outcast. And it shaped him. I don't believe that he'd have done the things that he did when he went back to Germany, if not for his time in African-American churches in the Jim Crow South. There's so many more stories to tell you from that, um, but I got a few other things to get into the sermon. Um, he was a Christian, not a German Christian. I wanna invite you, Ecclesia. Could we just be Christians? I'm glad you're an American. I'm glad you're a progressive. I'm glad you're a conservative. Wherever you find your place, Read the things you want to read, find your news channels, do whatever you want to do. But when it comes to your faith, will you say, I'm going to study the scriptures and follow God wherever he leads me and it won't fit with the box that you brought yourself there with. Does that make sense? You're going to have to, you're going to become uncomfortable. If Jesus doesn't make you uncomfortable, you're not following the real Jesus. And along the way, God's gonna say, hey, will you try this? Will you think about this? And we want to be a people that are open to hear. And for sure, when we encounter injustice, hatred, murder, and the like that Bonhoeffer, we want to be the people that are instinctively opposed to these things and stand against it. Two more, and then I'll read, tell you a story and read a text. Bonhoeffer teaches us that community is a gift. It's not an idol. He really believed that it was in Christian community where people loved each other despite all of their brokenness. And that was the key. 
that it was when we leaned in together, we could do things we could never imagine apart. Uh, we could experience joy and laughter. He loved times of Christian fellowship, of food and song and dance and all the fun. If you're a part of a real Christian community at Ecclesia, I'm telling you, people at Ecclesia, we love to eat, we love to laugh, we love to celebrate. It also means when things are hard that we'll have times to cry together. Now, the hard part of Christian community means that your problems are now my problems and my problems are now your problems. But the great thing is that your blessings and your gifts and your celebrations become mine and vice versa. And that's worth it in the end and it's a really great thing. He believed that Christ was the mediator between all of us and that we could work things out because Christ was working in between us in beautiful ways. He also believed that we had a tendency um, to idolize Christian community. Let me share with you a few of his quotes on Christian community. He says, the first service, and this is a beautiful invitation, he says, the first service one owes to others in a community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for others is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives God's word, but also lends us God's ear. Isn't that amazing to think that God actually listens to you? He listens to me. He says, we do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. Now, wherever you're at in your life, in community, in marriage, in family, this is a good reminder. It all begins with listening. And it's in that place, right, that we learn to listen and to pause and to hear that we actually learn how to be community to one another. I grew up in a church that taught us how to talk at people. And you get out in the world and you start talking at people all the time and you find they don't enjoy it. People don't want to be talked at. They want to be heard. And then when you hear somebody, you've got an opportunity to live in truly beautiful community. He also believed that when we found that community, we would have a tendency to try to idolize it, to, um, to, uh, to create an ideal that was not attainable. In other words, this is what happened. If you came of age in any way in the 90s, that, uh, that most popular of 90s sitcoms uh, did you great harm, a show called Friends. Um, it led us all to significant conclusions. Most of us watched Friends and we came to the same conclusion. My friends suck, <laughs> right? We all just left like, my, my friends aren't like that. Like, why don't I have a friend like Phoebe, right? And, and we, at the end of it, right, we didn't realize that it wasn't realistic. There weren't really people like that, that even if those people existed, none of them seemed to really have a real job. They could never afford the rents that they had. There was one scientist, none of the rest of them could actually afford anything. It was an ideal, and it left many of us going, my life's wanting, right? Bonhoeffer would say real Christian community is exactly that. It's real. He puts it this way. He says, um, God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility when we look at people's brokenness. He said, this is for God, the ground of unfathomable love. That's what makes God so remarkable. He loves you just like you are at your worst. 
And he invites us in the community where we're allowed to do the same. He says, when we don't, we, we love an idol of Christian community that's not achievable, right? There are many of you that could come to this church and be like, I want it to be, you know, this perfect church. And the perfect church, Bonhoeffer would say, it doesn't exist. And if it did exist, as soon as you joined it, you would mess it up. So instead, we say, here we are in this imperfect church. Let's be imperfect together, but let's ask God to redeem us in our imperfection together. In other words, he would say, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. It's easy to obsess over, well, because it's not this, then, it, then it's not good enough. And instead, what we would say is, yes, it is broken. Yes, we are broken. God is present. Let's walk well together. Lastly, and then I'll tell you a story and read you a text. Um, Bonhoeffer teaches us that in Christian community, we're nurtured alone so that we can be together. We're nurtured alone to be together. Now, depending on where you come uh, in your own personality in this room and who you are, uh, some of us find this to be easier than others. If you're an introvert, I'm an introvert. Um, so I function a lot as an extrovert, but after I preach all weekend, I'll do four services this weekend and four last weekend. I'm so tired of hearing my own voice. I need a place to hide, right? So you'll find me in some restaurant by myself. And if you walk in, you'll be like, poor Pastor Chris, he's so lonely. He's sitting by himself. No, I'm not. I'm thrilled, right? <laughs> Please leave me alone. You'll see me one day in the movies and you'll be like, that is so sad. Pastor Chris has to go to the movies by himself. I should go sit by him. Don't sit by me. <laughs> I'm having the best time of my life. I am so happy, right? Because just being alone can feel really good. Now, even for those of us that are introverted, it's hard to fully disconnect and be alone with God, right? I believe in this day and age more than ever, it's difficult to do that. And what I wanna invite you to consider is the possibility that all of us need to fully disconnect from time to time and be connected with God. And that seems really hard to do when you have a device that keeps you connected to every person on the planet, right? Every time a politician speaks, my thing buzzes, right? Every time some of you have an idea, my thing buzzes, right? And and what we need are times, my brother did this this weekend, we had a family group text going on and my nephew, he tore his labrum and his football game and we were sad. First he, he lost his game and he tore his labrum, like that's a bad night and we're all chiming in and my brother, he doesn't chime in, right? And the next day he chimes in and says, well, sorry I'm so late, I turned off my phone and I think we all kind of thought like, you did what? You, <laughs> you turned off your phone? Who does that, right? We need to do that. This week, I'm gonna to go to a retreat and I'm gonna hand in my phone, right? If you need me, you won't be able to get me because I need some time and you need some time that's disconnected from others. This is what Bonhoeffer would say. He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Isn't that a beautiful flip? Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the world, into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. I haven't seen many phones taking this uh, 
yeah, but I'm just telling you, you could think about this quote for a month. There is so much there. And we all exist in different ends of the tension on this paradigm. Or put another way, he says, alone, you stood before God when he called you. Alone, you had to answer that call, and alone, you had to struggle and pray, and alone, you will die and give an account to God. If you refuse to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you, and you can have no part in the community of those who are called. Ecclesia, find some space, find some quiet, be alone with God. When he speaks, something inside you will calm, but you can't just put your phone down for 10 minutes and invite God to speak. I've given you space I'm ready to hear. You know what? He's ready to speak, but you're not ready to listen. And it's when we tune everything out and we can be present, beautiful things happen for each of us. Bonhoeffer was right. I got so much I could tell you about him, and yet I'm supposed to conclude the sermon and we're supposed to take communion. This is what I want you to know. Bonhoeffer went back to Germany. There are people that tell different versions of the story. What I can tell you is I don't believe in any way that Bonhoeffer was like a uh, a military-type spy. I don't believe he was uh, creating plans to kill Adolf Hitler, but I believe he knew that the evil embodied in Adolf Hitler was significant enough that it could require circumstances like that. And all the people who were plotting to prevent uh, the evil of Hitler from advancing saw Bonhoeffer as the kind of ethical voice that needed to speak into that struggle. He was invited into many plots to seek to destroy Adolf Hitler. Ultimately, that participation, that communication was part of what led to his ultimate arrest. He spent two years in prison concentration camps, some of that in total isolation. All of that time, he treated the people there like they were his church and congregation. He became the pastor of the prison camp. He loved people well. He wrote a lot of letters. There's a lot of great stories in those letters. I can't tell you all of them. I can tell you that as he approached what was clear to him would be his execution, he wrote to his mother about some of his favorite things. He had a pretty remarkable wardrobe. If you look at a lot of photos of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you'll find that's a good looking man with a good looking suit, right? And he had felt top hats and he told, told his mother, give them all away. He spoke of his favorite suit and he said, the truth is it doesn't really fit me anymore anyway, right? Which I could relate to. I felt really good that even Dietrich Bonhoeffer ate too much sausage and drank too much beer and didn't fit into his good clothes. I can tell you that, um, that in, in March of 1945, you could hear uh, American gunfire even not too far in the distance. They were so close uh, to freeing Bonhoeffer and Germany that um, a week and a day after Easter, he was executed that the Sunday after Easter, the, the prisoners gathered there. The numbers were much smaller. They asked him to conduct a church service. He led in prayer. He preached a sermon, and the sermon was based on this text in Isaiah 53, and I'm just going to read it to you as we come to communion. Isaiah 53 speaks of the one, the Savior, who suffered for us, and then invited us to love others in the same way, in ways that remind us that we also may suffer. Isaiah says this, he says, indeed, who could ever believe it? Who would possibly accept what we've been told? Who has witnessed the awesome power and plan of the eternal in action? Out of emptiness he came like a tender shoot from rock hard ground. 
He didn't look like anything or anyone of consequence. He had no physical beauty to attract our attention. So he was despised and forsaken by men. This man of suffering, grief's patient friend. As if he was a person to avoid, we looked the other way. He was despised, forsaken, and we took no notice of him. Yet it was our suffering he carried, our pain and distress, our sick to the soulness. We just figured that God had rejected and that God was the reason he hurt so badly. But he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him, and he endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. We have all wandered off like shepherdless sheep, scattered by our aimless striving and our endless pursuits. The eternal one laid on him, the silent sufferer, the sins of us all. Ecclesia, we all know what it feels like to pursue aimless strivings and endless pursuits. It's in Christ that we meet our greatest purpose. You've been given gifts. Gifts that when we share them well with the world, our community and our world is better because of it. I wanna invite you to learn with me from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As we come to communion, will you give me a moment just to pray for you and with you. Lord God, I thank you for this bread. I believe that as it's broken, we're reminded of the one that suffered for us. He suffered for our sins and our failures and our transgressions. And Lord, we pray, much like our brother Dietrich, that we would learn in the midst of it to be courageous, to stand against injustice, that we'd learn what it means to particularly be a Christian with no other filter through which we discern out what parts of Christianity we'd like to throw away, that we would be all in with loving you and those that you love. And we know that you love all people, that you made all people in your image. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of Christian community. And we pray that we would care well for ourselves so that we can love one another well. We thank you today for this cup, for this wine and juice that says to each and every one of us that though we have failed, we are not a failure. Though we have sinned, you lean in and you have granted us complete forgiveness in the midst of that sin. And so for that, Lord, we celebrate. We thank you. We pray all of this together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.